Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. In her book, Boys Will Be Boys, Clementine Ford dismantles the age-old idea that entitlement, aggression and toxicity are natural realms for boys. In this session, recorded at the 2019 festival, she speaks to Amy Sandbrook. Let's get started. It's such a pleasure to be here in Newcastle this evening with one of Australia's most influential and inspiring writers and thinkers. Clementine Ford is a columnist, journalist and commentator and the best-selling author of Fight Like a Girl and Boys Will Be Boys. So please welcome Clementine Ford. So firstly, Clementine, I just want to thank you it's been a great experience reading Boys Will Be Boys. It's a big project um, and really it puts down in the most powerful way, like like really all your writing, but it puts it down really what a lot of us are thinking, feeling and experiencing right now and grappling with a lot of the issues that are, are flying around our world. Um, one thing that's really stayed with me, and this may surprise your critics perhaps, is um, just how much it's so full of love and hope. And, um, yeah, I just really loved reading it, so thank you. Why did you write this? I'm just scratching my eye. I'm not crying yet. (laughs) I held it back until right now (laughs) just to see if I could make you cry. (laughs) Why did you write this book? Um, Well, firstly, thank you very much for agreeing to facilitate this conversation and thank you to the Newcastle Writers' Festival for having me here. I'd also just like to begin by acknowledging, of course, that we are on stolen land. Um, I pay my respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and future. I live on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Nam. Um, And, uh, you know, it's always that awkward thing when you... There's saying words, obviously, and there's parallels with some of the things that I write about. There's saying words, and then there's action. And obviously, as a country, we are not doing anywhere near enough when it comes to action on Aboriginal uh, empowerment, on decolonisation, on acknowledging the, the, the theft that has happened in this country, and the ongoing oppression and trauma specifically meted out against Aboriginal women in particular. So I just wanted to start by saying that. Um, don't don't applaud me for that. That's I'm like the I'm like the white man saying, you know, women are really powerful, and we should we should have. I'm oh, such a good guy. Don't applaud me for that. Um, but yes, I feel like this book is. So you asked me why I wrote it. Um, in many ways, I also have to apologise because I re, I flew in today and I really really hate flying. I'm very scared of flying, and I have to take drugs to fly. So if you see me yawning, it's not because I'm bored or tired or I'm not present, it's just because I took Valium this morning. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, So why did I write this book? I felt like there was obviously a real need to have some of the conversations that come up in this book. You know, we, we clearly need to talk about issues like toxic masculinity, patriarchy, the weaponization of power and masculinity against other people, some of whom are other men. Um, And also it was a perfect companion text to my first book, which was Fight Like a Girl, which was a memoir of growing up as a girl, being socialised in this world and some of the messages that we are conditioned to conform to and also to uh, the messages that are used to fill us with self-doubt. So I felt like you can't really tell the whole story unless you tell both sides of it. 
So that's why I wanted to write Boys Will Be Boys. And of course, I had a very personal reason as well, which was that um, when I was writing Fight Like a Girl, I became pregnant and uh, just after it, sorry, eight weeks before it came out, I gave birth to a child who was assigned male at birth and who we are raising as a boy until we find otherwise. Um, so I'm very invested in creating or helping to create a world in which he will neither become the perpetrator of harm because of his power and privilege in the world based on just the, the circumstances of his birth, but nor will he be subjected to the harm that men suffer under a patriarchy as well. I mean, obviously, some of that is unavoidable at the stage that we're at in the world that we're in now because, you know, we move at such a glacial pace. But, you know, when I hear things like... It's funny that people say that, you know, you, you sort of mention... Um, before we were walking up, I said, oh, people are surprised when they find out that I'm quite nice because <laughs> they think that... I think I'm a very nice person, but they think that, of course, they just see, like, the persona of me and the, and the my Twitter account... <laughs> And they think that I'm a nasty, harrowed and shrew. All words that they would never use against strong-minded men either. But um, I feel like people aren't aware that this is a book that's written from a place of love. And it's not just love for my son and the world I want him to live in. And it's not just love for women and the freedom that they want from some of the behaviours that I write about in this book. It's actually love for the complexities of men and for what I know to be true of men in my life, but also men generally speaking, that they're human beings who aren't born with some of the compulsions that people ascribe to masculinity, that the phrase, a phrase like boys will be boys is actually something that largely assigns behaviours that are harmful to them as well and that we should want more for for that class of people than just saying, well, this is, this is what they're like. Um, so that's kind of where, where the book is coming from. So we are going to talk a lot about toxic masculinity. So to frame that conversation, I just wanted to, to get you to um, explain what you mean by that and just ask, is it, um, how good a term is it? Are there, are there flaws in it itself? I mean, I think it's a great term. It's one that's often misunderstood because when people hear the phrase toxic masculinity, unless they've engaged with the idea of it before or unless they're willing to go and read a little bit more about it, oftentimes they confuse it for meaning, for thinking that you mean all masculinity is toxic by its very nature. Um, and so there's two things going on with that. And the first is, of course, the phrase toxic masculinity isn't in reference to all masculinity being toxic. It's in reference to a particular the particular ways that masculinity can be used and weaponized to create toxic ways of thinking and, and to enact toxic behaviors on other people. Um, but the second thing is that, you know, any woman in this room who has, and I know that there are going to be men in this room who count themselves as feminists too, but I, I think it's unlikely that you've ever said that you're a feminist and been accused of hating men. You've probably been accused of hating yourself or being a cuck, or whatever it is, you know, a white knight. Oh, they're, no, they're not going to have sex with you. Um, but you're not accused of hating men as a group of people because you simply believe in equality and you, and you want to liberate women from patriarchy. 
Um, but when, you know, as a feminist, when you explain that you, um, you're against rape culture or you're against phrases like boys will be boys using, being used to excuse away um, violent behaviour um, or, or a range of behaviours that are on, on that spectrum, then, of course, you're accused of hating all men. You think all men are rapists. You think all men are bad. You think, you think this and this and this about men. When actually, as again, as you all know, that the reality is that, that you believe men are better than that. You believe men are much more complex than that. And that to say men can't help themselves, all these phrases that we have, oh, well, what did she, th what did she expect? She was wearing a short skirt. She was drinking with someone. Why did she go home with him? You know, Spider Everett, years ago, after the 2010 Collingwood Grand Final, saying, oh, girls, when will you learn at 3 a.m. when you go home with a bloke, it's not for a cup of Milo, allegedly. Um, and then Kerry Ann Kennelly backing him up and saying, oh, these, these footy strays, they get these boys into trouble. All of that ideology is what argues that men are base creatures that cannot be better than the box that we've put them in, that men are just rapists looking for an opportunity. It's not feminists and it's not feminism and it's not women who want better for for themselves and also for the men in their lives who believe that men aren't capable of something more. We know that men are capable of something more and we're saying we want to be part of creating a world in which other people expect more from men too. Um, so when people think about toxic masculinity and they revert straight away to, oh, well, you're just saying all mas masculinity is toxic, they're really just playing into this idea that what they want, or they're, and they're playing into this dynamic that exists, which is we, they want men to maintain their position in society, um, whether or not individual men have power themselves or feel that they do or not, men as a class have the power. They want men to be able to maintain that power. They want men to be able to do the things that they currently do within that power structure, but they don't want men to be made to feel bad about that. You know, so when they say things like boys will be boys or what did she expect, they're not saying we think it's okay that these men raped this girl. They're, oh no, she's probably, it's a bit too late now, but trigger warning for discussion of some fairly heavy shit. Um, they're not saying, oh, it's okay that these men raped that girl. They're saying these men didn't do that because these men couldn't do anything wrong, so she must be lying. She must be manipulating the situation because they cannot have a state in their head where they acknowledge that sometimes men who we like and men who we understand can be good people can also do terrible things. Mm. And I think, it, for me, when preparing for this session, um, I've, it's been... It's been really challenging just to to reflect on my own experiences of this exact culture. I mean, um, really, the experiences ranging from like straight up assault, harassment, you know, all of the workplace stuff that happens. The really, you know, it, it's everything from the most extreme to the everyday. But when you actually think about where that's happened, it's mm. in the workplace, in the home, on the streets, socially. It's like at the doctors. It's like everywhere, which we know, and, and plenty of women in all of our lives have been talking about these, these exact experiences, it's still really shocking that when you actually stop and reflect on the pervasiveness of that culture in your life. So, yeah, I just, it's been... Well, I would say that, you know, just 
harking back briefly to the idea of toxic masculinity, that an expression of toxic masculinity is in how uh, an expression of naive, disinterested masculinity is in how many men continue to be surprised by the Me Too stories that they hear. Because what that indicates to me is that these men, many of whom you know, I would happily have a beer with, I'm not saying they're terrible people, but they just don't talk to any of the women that they know about anything meaningful. They've never asked the women in their lives, have you had these experiences? They've never said, what was it like growing up as a woman in this world? If they've never asked the questions, and you know, oftentimes for, for obvious reasons, women might not feel comfortable disclosing those things, but maybe they also sense that there's not a safe place in which they can disclose those things. But if you're a man who's hit 50 years old, and you're expressing surprise at the stories that you're hearing coming out of Me Too, it means you've never had a deep and meaningful conversation with a woman about anything that matters to her. And obviously there's women in this room who re relate to that. But the other thing as well is that the way then that toxic masculinity is ex it can be expressed in that specific example is, so there's the ignorance first, and then the, the women you know, women come out and they disclose their stories. And then there's this onslaught of, oh, well, you're just overreacting, or the Me Too movement's gone too far, or this is just, it's a very scary time to be a boy these days. <laughs> um, or, you know, like someone, you know, I write about Louis C.K. in the book, someone like Louis C.K., who for years was dogged by allegations about his repulsive, sexually abusive behaviour towards other women in the comedy industry. And he, not only did he always treat those allegations as completely beneath him to even acknowledge, but he also was backed up and supported by everyone who loved Louis C.K. because Louis C.K. is the godfather of comedy, so amazing, he revolutionised comedy, so funny. Um, so no one wanted to believe it about him. And then when it was like too late for him to continue to deny it because the New York Times had published a comprehensive expose of it, and he finally had to acknowledge and admit it. He released his apology that, managed, that mentioned four times how he'd let down people who'd admired him. And he'd mentioned all the, you know, four times the people who had admired him, women who'd admired him, this admiration that he'd had, and he didn't say the word sorry once. And I remember tweeting about that, because I had, um, you know, I thought Louis C.K. was bad before everyone else did. Um, <laughs> no, I remember tweeting that that false apology out that day and saying something scathing about him, and some guy replied saying, oh, well, he said sorry, what more do you want? Now, to me, that's also an expression of toxic masculinity because it's, it's this assumption that men can behave exactly as they please until the point where they finally have to, they finally can no longer run from the consequences of it, and yet somehow we're supposed to just absorb the pain that's been inflicted because, oh, well, he said sorry. What more do you want? You write in your introduction, we know what violence can be done to our daughters and people on the whole seem desperate to find a solution to this. This search for solutions has yet to include looking at ways to change the behaviour of boys. Mm. So why aren't we just as scared that our boys might be the ones that are hurting girls and hurting each other? Um, I feel like since I wrote those words, slowly more and more people are becoming 
conscious of that. But again, I probably live in a bit of a bubble where I interact with those people and the vast majority of Australia probably doesn't think that way. Um, I think that it's because, of course, I mean, from a, from a purely emotional perspective, no one wants to believe that their child is going to become a criminal. Um, oh no, sorry, let me rephrase that. No one wants to believe that their child is going to do something that deeply and irrevocably harms someone else. And yet, the refusal to acknowledge that possibility, even like to separate your heart from your head and understand in your head that it is possible and that every, you know, almost every person who's, who has perpetrated that level of harm against someone else has people in their lives who love and value them. And certainly we, can, we know the way that perpetrators are spoken about in the news and the way that they're humanised and their, their families are mentioned and, oh, he was a really good bloke. Killed his family, but he was a good bloke. Um, it's very difficult for people to kind of hold those, you know, like I said before, to hold those two ideas in their head, that someone can be a good person in lots of ways and they can also do terrible things. And if you combine that with the fact that most people are not raising their children with any awareness of consent, they're not raising them with any awareness of structural oppression or of the ways in which privilege impacts us all, sometimes as beneficiaries and sometimes as... Um, calamities of it, then of course their kids are going to grow up absorbing all of the, the mainstream ideas about entitlement that we know exist. Um, you know, some of the stories that I, I look at, and it, it, it really grieves me. I know that there are people who won't believe this, but it really grieves me to know that there are young men out there who are perpetrating sexual violence against their peers who that it didn't have to be that way. I'd really like to explore the issues of consent because I think it's absolutely core to um, toxic masculinity. Why why is consent still contested? Like I, like what is actually so hard about this? seems pretty obvious. <laughs> I mean, it's, it does seem obvious. I don't, I had a conversation with a friend the other day about his um, friend was, uh, fortunately, the worst outcome didn't occur from this, but his friend was, uh, you know, slipped a um, GHB in her drink at, club, both she and her friend were, and they passed out outside the, the nightclub that they were in and managed to get medical, other people around were good bystanders and they managed to get the medical attention. But I was talking to my friend about it and saying, you know, apart from the obvious, like, how could anyone do that to someone? You know, it's, it's difficult, still difficult for me to wrap my head around what would, what is so, what is so broken inside of someone that they that, that would be something that they would want to do. But also trying to figure out, well, did this person target these two women in particular and just, forgive me for framing it like this, miss the opportunity at the end of the night? Or were they just two of 20 women that they targeted knowing that, well, one of those, one of those gambles is going to pay off? And 
the sec that second one is probably the most likely and that's what makes it more frightening. And I said to my friend, you know, your friends were, uh, there was intervention and they were, the, you know, they, they were drugged and they had a terrible experience because of that, but at least this other thing didn't happen. But, but which woman did that happen to that night? Who was the unlucky one? Mm. And I, I don't understand why consent is so difficult for people to wrap their heads around even as observers, you know, that it's one thing separating the mind of someone who would willfully go out and rape someone. Um, and there's interesting data in the book actually about how rapists are able to justify their behaviour in their own minds. So um, one particular study that was done looked at a group of university college-aged men and they asked them two sets of questions, or it was two group, different groups of people obviously, um, and they said to one group, would you rape someone if you knew that you could get away with it? And 13% of the respondents said that they would. I mean, 13% is still a scary number. It's a huge number. It's, can I just have all of the men in the room put their hands up? All right, so it's like those two rows... Uh, those first three rows of men, there's what, like four men in there? Four men in this room. I'm not saying you would. I'm just saying that statistically that's what that looks like, you know? So, oh, 13%, oh, that's not very high. It is actually very bloody high. Um, but when they rephrased the question to another group as, would you have sex with someone against their consent? Or would you have sex with someone if you knew that they didn't want to, if you knew that you would get away with it? That number jumped to 36%, which is a lot more men in this room. Um, and I think that that's, that's part of it, is this, you know, it's not just the people who are perpetrating sexual violence, it's, it's everyone else around them enabling them. It's, this, it's the culture that we live in, which is a rape culture, that dismisses issues like consent, dismisses women's autonomy, dismisses, um, dismisses even the reality even that we still live in a gender unequal world and under a patriarchal rule in which women are subject to this kind of violence all the time. Because people, again, like going back to this idea, people don't want to do accept that men that they like can do bad things. And it's not men who just peel out of the walls in an alleyway, you know, we oh God, she walked down the wrong way to go home, you know, it's her fault, really, really. She shouldn't have been out that late. Um, it's it's men that they know. Like, we know that the, the biggest risk group to, to women are men that they know. And how do, people, how do people address that in their minds? You know, how, and also the men who are very resistant to having those conversations, how often is that because they don't want to confront some of the things that they've done in their past? Or the reality of, of, of maybe they pushed it too far one night and they knew that she didn't want it, but, well, she didn't fight him off. And I think the the culture around around sex, I mean, it's something that's really um, that you go into in a lot of depth in the book. One thing that that really um, that's really been interesting to me is to think about ideas of integrity or morality, um, which are kind of taboo words. We know some, we like to be progressive and inclusive and da da. 
but to actually think about those words in the context of, um, of consent. So one, one section of your book, you say, why aren't people more concerned about the kind of sex a lot of young men seem to be pursuing and the methods with which they choose mm. to pursue it? Call me crazy, but I just feel that taking turns on a woman and high-fiving each other over it and then sharing the recorded footage around school or uni or the locker room as evidence of what a loose slut she is might not be the healthiest expression of masculinity and as such is probably not worthy of a robust and spirited defence. Mm. Where does morality and integrity actually sit in all of this? It feels like lots of the examples in your book are men that are perpetrating these, these acts or um, you know, football teams and all the things that we hear about all the time, and it does come back to a, well, was it a yes-no, like let's go back to a mm. consent... Um, but realistically, like the actual culture of the behaviour that, that they're engaging with, like we're not really talking about that, are we? Um, I don't think we're talking about it enough, no. You know, obviously we should be very focused on educating our children about consent. And there's no too early age to talk to your kids about consent because consent, we, we exercise consent in everything that we do, you know. We don't, when I say talk to your toddlers about consent, I don't mean sit down and talk to them about sex. I mean talk to them about hugging or playing with other kids' toys. If they say stop, then you have to stop. Um, you know, with my son, I try very hard to model consent to him. You know, I always ask him, can I have a hug? Can I have a kiss? And if he says no, then I'll say, okay, that's, I'll repeat it back to him okay, that's fine, you said no, and that means that I can't do it. Um, or if we're playing and, you know, tickling him or whatever, and he says, no, stop, I'll, I'll stop straight away. And so you said stop, and that means that I have to stop. And also when he's, by the same token, when he's doing something to me that I don't like, like crawling all over me or whatever, if I say stop and he doesn't, I repeat that back to him, I said stop, and that means that you have to stop. And, you know, kids are so... they. I think it's something like 90% of our brain synapses are fired up in the first five years of our life. Kids are amazingly sponge-like and they suck up... How is it that people think it's impossible to talk to their children around about these incredibly important issues? But having said that, you're right that it's not just about teaching them about yes, no and stop. Obviously, it's so much more complex than that. But how do we, like, why are we in this position where it is becoming an increasing problem of, um, sorry, we should just all turn and look very pointedly at that person <laughs> with their phone on. <laughs> no, only because I lost my train of thought. Um, as I'm going back to this idea of like grieving for the thought of particularly young men perpetrating behaviour that could have been intervened on, you know, that is not... I, do, I don't believe that it is innate to men to want to get together with their bros and rape a woman and film it and slut-shame her and degrade and dehumanise her. I don't believe that that is an innate part of masculinity. So what happened between them being someone who's my son's age, who's, he's almost three... What happened between that stage and that stage? What influences were they exposed to? What language was being shared in their house? What dismissive 
behavior and dismissive language was being used about women complainants that made them feel like this, not only is this acceptable, but also didn't challenge removing the, the sex and power side out of it and removing even the victim slash survivor of it, where is the conversation being had about male socialization and bonding and how the, the again, word, the word toxic, the toxic ways that men are enabled to bond with each other because the world that we live in is so broken about masculinity that they can't bond with each other in healthy, platonically intimate, touching ways. So for them to be able to do that, or for a football team to be able to celebrate their victory, they have to go out and, like, fuck a girl together and degrade her. You know, there's a story in the book that's actually quoted from Anna Crean's book, Night Games, because I, I write about the act of humiliation, like the, the bonding activity of humiliation. And it's not just women who are humiliated in these activities, of course. You know, men bond together to humiliate other men too. Um, and Anna Crean writes about a woman, you know, Night Games is about... Um, sexuality, uh, not sexuality, sorry, sexual violence and sexual indiscretions and uh, the, the sort of seedy side of what happens in the football world. And she quotes this story about this woman who had consensual group sex with a group of footballers who, uh, at the end of it, and I, I could only surmise that it was because she'd consented so there was no way that they could possibly the degradation was unable to occur via the fact that she was willingly there and obviously enthusiastic. So this one player in his head must have been like, well, how do I make her feel like shit about herself? So when it was all finished, he took a shit in her shoe without her realising it so that they could all laugh when she put it on. And that to me kind of... Like, these are not men who operate on the peripheries of society. These are men who are amongst our most... We're celebrating them. Our most celebrated mm -hmm. men. Men who are given access to so much privilege and so much adulation, and this is how they're behaving, with no one, no one querying it or questioning it. So, so how is... Like, of course it's incredibly juvenile, but it's also very harmful and has the potential to cause deep destruction not just to the person they're targeting, but to themselves and their own, their own psychosocial selves, you know? What is it that is so difficult? What, what are the barriers that we're still continuing to place in front of men that allows them, that would allow them to connect with other men on a deep, empathetic, beautiful, loving level that you know, all of our kind of paranoia about homophobia and, you know, and how homophobia is so deeply entwined with misogyny prevents them from being able to connect like that. So in, so they have to find some other way to, to relate to each other. Hmm. It's a terrible story, that one. It's well, I, you know, it's that's an extreme example and, and obviously not every man who struggles to relate to other men is going to perpetrate some of this behaviour. But the fact remains that a lot of men in, in positions of great power do perpetrate that behaviour. But, you know, even aside from that, 
if a ma you know a man doesn't need to cause harm to someone else to be subject to the harm that this system is enforcing. You know, I, I think of, again, thinking of my son, it makes me feel brokenhearted to think that he could, that there would come a time where he felt, he felt isolated from, mm. you know, his brethren and unable to truly connect with them. And, you know, the biggest killer of, generally speaking, the biggest killer of men between the ages of 18 and 45 in this country is suicide. And it's not because of feminism. It's not because women are making inroads and gains. It's because patriarchy breaks men in a different way. We're both parents of kids about the same age, um, and I think that it's still it's still is, is shocking that really that some of the very tightest social constraints seem to be around children and gender. I'm also a gorilla clothes swapper, um, <laughs> so I move the Be Brave shirts um, into the girls' department and the unicorns make me smile into the boys' department. Um, do you think a lot of the problems that we've spoken about can be can be changed radically just by the way, way that we actually raise our kids? Yes, I do. I think that I think it has to come with. A, a community, a community that insists on creating change for its most vulnerable people, but who are also the future members of that community. Yeah. It's it's not going to come from anywhere else because it's these these issues are not external. You know, we didn't just walk into a rape mist one day and, and like, catch it, you know. It's, it's all socialised. So unless you... You know, one of the examples that I use a lot is um, about how a society can change. A society that doesn't think that change is possible can actually change. Because humans are incredibly malleable. And we're actually all... The vast majority of us are followers. We want to be told what to do. We want to... Um, we want to buckle to authority. Most of us, not all of us, but most of us. Authority is obviously not always good and not always invested in our best interests, but it can be used in a good way. And so the example I use is smoking in public places. So I remember in like the mid-90s, um, or maybe the late-90s in South Australia where I was living, they banned smoking in restaurants. And at the time, people were like, well, you can't ban smoking in restaurants. Everyone loves to go out to a restaurant and have a cigarette at the end of their meal, or in the middle of their meal. Um, people won't tolerate it. And of course they were like, no, 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 smoking in restaurants is gross, we're going to ban that, and you're just going to have to deal with it. And so they banned it, and very quickly people adapted, because it's actually really nice to go to a restaurant and not have people smoking around you. And then 10 years after that, they said, well, we're going to ban smoking in pubs now, and hotels. And people were like, well, you definitely won't get away with this because people love to go to the pub and have a beer. What are, what are the, all the old blokes at the bar going to do? You know, they want to go to the pub at the end of the day and have a beer with their cigarettes. People won't go to the pub anymore. And obviously in Australia, we still have a huge problem with alcohol abuse. <laughs> and if you went into a pub or a hotel or a restaurant and you lit up a cigarette now, people would look at you not just with disgust, but also like you were an alien that had just landed on the planet and you didn't know what the social convention was. It, you would be looked at like a pariah. And that is how easy it is to change a society. 
People think it's not easy, but it is easy. And of course, like issues of, in this example, issues of misogyny and abuse of women is, is different to smoking. But yes, there are always going to be outliers, but it's actually much easier to change the middle ground than people think. What you need to do is just make it unacceptable. You make it unacceptable to tell sexist jokes. You make it unacceptable to use language about women that we deem to be unacceptable. You make it unacceptable to use homophobic slurs to put other men in their place. You just, you insist on becoming the kind of society in which behaviours that cause harm and distress to other members of that society, you insist on becoming the kind of place in which that is unacceptable, and you make it so. This seems like the best, worst time to bring up our Prime Minister. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> Who said, and I think we've probably all read this, that is an absolutely liberal value that you don't push some people down to lift some people up. And that is true about gender equality too. We want to see women rise, but we don't want to see women rise only on the basis of others doing worse. Prime Minister Scott Morrison, International Women's Day a few weeks ago. <laughs> I mean, we thought it. We thought we couldn't top Tony Abbott, right? What sort of equality is he aiming for there? Oh, he's not. This is not just him. This is a lot of them. Scott Morrison is a Pentecostal Christian. He does not want gender equality. True. He's also a dickhead. <laughs> that I. She said it, not me. She said it. Stand up. Take a bow. He's also a dickhead. <laughs> he doesn't want equality. He's, he's an example of, you know, he thinks that, oh, that bloody feminism is going too far. You know, it's a really scary time to be a man. Um, I, I just find it baffling that I had the most <sighs> absurd conversation on International Women's Day this year. I went to an event in, um, I went to an event in Victoria, and it was a really nice event, really beautifully run. It was like a regional town, and I really love going to regional areas. Um, everything about it was excellent, except for these three people that I spoke to at the start. <laughs> and it was this this woman approached me, and she introduced herself, and she said, "Blah blah blah, something MP." And I I could, didn't really hear what she, I thought she'd said, "Wife of an MP," and then she introduced me to this young staff, and I was like, "Oh, I must have misheard. She must have said I'm the local MP," because I couldn't understand why someone would introduce themselves as the wife of someone. Um, and I said, "I'm so sorry, I didn't I didn't know that." And she was like, "Oh no, of course you you shouldn't have known that." And then she said something else that made me realise, "Oh no, she is the wife of an MP," who I also didn't know. Um, and she started to, you know, it became very clear that he wasn't there because, of course, why would he need to come? It's this Women's Day event. He sent his wife along with his staffer. Um, and she said, to, you know, she started talking to me about, you know, what do you think of the, the slogan for the day? And the, the International Women's Day slogan this year was Balance for Better, which is just bullshit. So I was like, I think it's bullshit. Um, she's like, oh, why? And I said, oh, I just, it doesn't mean anything. Like, balance for better. What, what are we balancing for? I don't want to balance for better. I want to change the system. Tip it over. <laughs> and, and she said, oh, well, you should get up there and say that. And I said, don't worry, I will. <laughs> and, you know, it was actually, it ended up being a really nice panel. And, you know, everyone in the room was very enthusiastic about this sort of smash the state. Um, but she said, she said to me, well, you know, the, the problem I have is just with this gender equality thing. Because I think that, you know, we should be caring about men too. 
And I was like, well, that sort of is what gender equality <laughs> is about. Like, it's about restructuring the entire system so that no one's harmed by it. And she said, well, you know, the problem I have is just with these quotas. Um, and her, the young staffer said, yes, I'm more... This, you know, she... I shouldn't say... I feel like hopefully as she gets a bit older, this young staffer might change her mind, but she must have been all of, like, 23 years old. Um, and she said, you know, I'm one of those people who definitely thinks that we should be, you know, we should give, be giving people jobs on merit, not on quotas. And I said, well, I think that merit is a great idea. It would be nice if it worked. Or it would be nice if we actually did use a merit system. And they were both like, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, I just sort of used the politician's example of, like, how, how can we possibly have a merit-based system when our entire government is populated mostly by white middle-aged men of a particular background? Like, how is that possibly representative democracy? And representative democracy has to, has to be inclusive of the community. I don't accept that white men who have the most privilege, who've, who've been called on the least to look outside of themselves, are possibly equipped to be able to speak for everybody. If anything, if we're going to have one group of people running the country, it should be black women. Uh, um, anyway, so she, so this, the wife of this MP said, oh, well, you know, my husband's background's in policing. And, you know, it's just terrible with the quotas in policing now because women are just being given jobs and then they're not qualified for them. And I said, well, how could you possibly know that all of the women being given jobs in the police force right now aren't qualified to do those jobs? She's like, oh, well, of course I don't know that. But... And I said, well, that's exactly what you're saying. And then the, the young staffer said, my brother works at Barwon Prison, and he said that, you know, all of these young women are being made prison guards and they just can't front up to the, the you know, the big prisoners. And I was like, well, I'm sure a lot of, like, the male prison guards probably have that same problem. She said, oh, yeah, but less so. And I... And I I just couldn't understand where they were. It was a very tedious conversation. <laughs> and then the woman made a complaint about me afterwards, like wrote to the mayor of the town. She's like, I thought it was outrageous that you had this woman. I'd never heard of her before, but I came along anyway. And I, she stood there and she said to me that women should be given jobs whether or not they're qualified for them or not. And, and you know, then she sat up on stage and she trashed the theme. And you told me to. She trashed the theme. And then she, I couldn't understand why all these people were cheering for her. Is that really where we're back to now, just this man-hating feminism of the 1970s? And I was like, yes, that is where we are. Thank God. Now, we, we will go to questions in just a minute. but. Clem, I wonder if you, if you would be open to reading just a, maybe a section of the, sure. the letter to your son in the book. I, I like how we made that seem like we hadn't planned that before. <laughs> oh, whoops, I just dropped my microphone. Hang on. Um, so I'm just going to read a little excerpt from the epilogue of the book because it sort of is really the reason why I wrote this book, and I'm probably going to cry while I read it too. <clears throat> so uh, just to preface this, it's a, it's a very hard read in lots of ways that, you know, escalates from the gender division and the, the opening is sort of like the gender division in the home, how we socialise our children, and then it, it, it escalates through this is what happens and this is what is happening when we don't intervene in 
how men are being socialised and men's behaviour, and we don't we don't critically call it out. And this is the reason. Dear F, my darling boy, the first thing you need to know is that I love you. My love for you is a constantly evolving creature. It's made its home in my heart, but it travels through every part of my body, finding new places to set down roots. Every night I think to myself that it's impossible for me to love you any more than I already do, that my body is so full of love for you that it simply can't fit a shred more in. And every morning I wake up and realise that, just like you, it's grown a little bit more in the dark. A few hours after you were born, when the chaos of birth was over and our room was quiet and still, I began to drift off to sleep, only to be interrupted by a wet, mucusy cough coming from the bassinet next to me. I bolted upright and furiously smashed the call button for the nurse. I lifted you up, still unsure of how to hold you properly, and handed you to the calm man who appeared before me. Don't worry, he said, gently rubbing your tiny back. This is normal. I felt in that moment just how terrifying it was to have you, the precious person who had placed such primal trust in me. It seemed like life from then on would be lived on the precipice of a cliff, and that if I failed to pay proper attention, you could go tumbling over the edge. When we brought you home from the hospital, I lay with you on our bed in the dim glow of the lamplight and thought to myself, I've made a terrible mistake. I knew that a huge amount of responsibility lay before me, and I feared I wasn't up to the task. I hope you know that having you has been the greatest gift of my life. At first, I didn't know how to have a boy. I know how cruel the world can be to girls, and that this cruelty in turn affects the boys who don't conform to what people expect of them. I knew that no matter what kind of boy you turned out to be, if indeed you turned out to be a boy, there was no guarantee you would be treated kindly for it. To be girlish as a boy is to be deficient in some way. To do things like a girl is to be embarrassingly lacking in skills and ability, a shameful waste of all the promise your masculinity is supposed to deliver on. The boys perceived to be too feminine by a society terrified of what soft, gentle masculinity might mean are frequently subjected to the twin tyrannies of homophobia and misogyny. We will always provide shelter for you from other people's fear and bigotry, but not every boy is so lucky. In our house, you'll be just as likely to find princess costumes in your toy box as you will a pirate's hat or a football. You're currently obsessed with trains, but you also like to put them in the seat of your dolly stroller and walk them around the living room. You ballet dance along with Emma Wiggle, and when she says goodbye, you lift your hands to your head and copy her as she wishes you a beautiful day. You may not ever want to wear the dresses we have hanging in your closet, but we want you to know that they are just as legitimate a choice for you as a pair of jeans. I'm prepared, I think, for the moment you might come home from kindy or school and tell me something like, pink isn't for boys, or that girls can't do X, Y, or Z. But it still breaks my heart to know how little time you and your friends have before that lesson will be forced on you. I'm trying to make sure you're strong enough to resist it. I hope I succeed. No matter what happens, I hope that our home will always be a soft place for you to land. There are other homes out there, battlegrounds with lines drawn around gendered roles and expectations. In such homes, there are daily reminders of what makes a real boy, and they're strictly enforced. These boys live with adults who deny them toys and clothes based on nothing more convincing than the sex they've been assigned at birth. They might have fathers who mock them for liking butterflies and fairies, and mothers who side with those men because they're also afraid of what it means to produce a son who, in their eyes, fails at being a boy. This is where the first lessons of toxic masculinity are learned, and the potential they have to cause lifelong harm cannot be underestimated. You are lucky, my darling. You have a father who is gentle and kind, who models empathy and compassion. You will never be made to feel ashamed or afraid to cry in front of him. 
Sharing your emotions isn't a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. You're only little now, and you probably think I have the answers to everything. But by the time you read this, you'll be old enough to realise that I'm just as confused about life as you are. I can only tell you what I've learned along the way. Here's what I know. Your kindness and empathy are valuable. You have both these things in spades, and you must hold on to them. If you trust what they tell you, they'll help you to make the right choices. Power is not gained by taking something from another person. Don't use a woman as a way to reckon with your own feelings of inadequacy or anger. We are not the conduits for male pain. Violence is not the way to solve your problems. You'll meet people along the way who think it's normal for boys to scrap with each other, to use their fists to settle disagreements and to try to come out the winner. These people are wrong. Violence is ugly and brutal, and you are neither of these things. We all need to be held sometimes. Homophobia is such a destructive force in men's lives. It teaches you to avoid each other's touch and to shield yourselves from platonic male affection. It's okay to hug another man. It's okay to cry in front of each other. It's okay to say you love each other. Be, <laughs> sorry. Be stronger than the message that tells you sharing basic human emotions with another man makes you somehow less of one. Respect women. Unless we succeed in radically changing the world in the next 20 years, understand that women have legitimate reasons to be afraid of you sometimes. This isn't a reflection on your behaviour, I hope, but a response to the realities of the world they live in. Instead of getting upset about how it makes you feel, work with them to help make it different. Enjoy friendships with, with women. Listen to women when they talk to you about their lives and recognise that their experiences are just as valid as yours. They don't need you, you to explain their feelings or rationalise the things they might be talking about. As a white man, there are lots of inequalities you'll be protected from during your life. Seek to expand your understanding of the world and the privilege you have within it, and then be a part of dismantling the system. Resist other men's attempts to bond with you over the degradation of women. It isn't funny to joke about raping women or beating them. Telling them to get back into the kitchen or make a sandwich is bad comedy, and we've raised you with better teachers than that. I hear these things from boys and men all the time, and I can tell you they're not funny. They're degrading and frightening. Don't align yourself with people who rely on making women feel afraid in order, in order to make themselves feel better. Too many men claim to oppose gendered violence while failing to speak out against it when they see their peers perpetrating it. You can be braver than that. Seek intimacy. Sex should be a conversation between consenting adults. You are not owed anything by anybody. Recognise that there is infinite pleasure to be had in making sure your partner or partners are enjoying themselves and exploring your mutual desires together. They can say no at any stage, so can you. Em embrace sensitivity. Don't let a world that's frightened of soft men succeed in breaking you. We have too many broken men. We need men like you, men whose strength comes from being gentle. Have faith in this. Remember, your life is no more valuable than anyone else's, but you can live in a way that brings value to everybody. These are the things I wanted to teach you. I hope I have succeeded. But all that is in the future. For the time being, yours is a simple life. You wake, you eat, you play, and you sleep. We ask you where your foot is, and you grab it, smiling. You laugh endlessly, and it's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. When your friends come to play, you hug them. When you walk together, you reach for their ham. You know how to say please. You know how to say thank you. You know how to say sorry. You are my son, my son. I am dazzled by your brightness. You burn me with your beauty. I'm at peace in the warmth of your rays. I want this world to be different for you. I want you to have more choices about the kind of boy you want to be. 
Boys will be boys, but we have so far collectively failed to let you all be anything other than the most rigid, damaging and reductive form of boy. What if we tried to do things differently? It might require a number of attempts on our part. We may have to return to the drawing board again and again. But if we work at it, if we direct our energies into addressing our mistakes and finding better solutions, we can paint an alternative picture. Boys will be sensitive. Boys will be soft. Boys will be kind. Boys will be gentle. Boys will be respect girls. Boys will be accountable for their actions. Boys will be expressive. Boys will be loving. Boys will be nurturing. Boys will be different from everything the world has so far told them they have to be in order to be a man. To my darling son, my light and my life. I will not be the one who hands you the knife and shows you how to carve out the parts of yourself that don't fit. To the sons of my friends, to my nephews, to the boys who want butterflies painted on their cheeks, the boys who twirl in dresses, and the boys who always pick the sparkly shoes. We can do this together. Are you ready? Thank you. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. Oh, it's it's. Just, I just love that you know. So many times of reading it, and I still just feel the emotions of it because it's just, you know, it's just so true. All those beautiful little soft boys out there that need need us to take care of them. They need us to make the world better for them as well yeah. as making the world safer and stronger for women. We are running a little bit late, but I think we can fit in maybe two or three questions. So, show of hands. Okay, yep, there's a microphone just in the central aisle here. Hello. I didn't realise I was going to be first and now I'm very nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. I'm a high school teacher. Um, my, na <laughs> um, my name is Kira and thank you so much. It's between you and Hannah Gadsby, you've kind of framed what I've been feeling for so long. Um, in a former school, I was subject to, I guess you could say, small violences, um, boys humping the air as I walked past, um, crude hand gestures, incessant requests on Facebook. Um, and it wasn't presented to me as Kira boys will be boys. It was reframed to me as um, there are different rules for boys. Um, I've even been told to take it as a compliment, laugh it off. Um, so, and that was at a former school. It's not perfect. Um, at parent-teacher evenings, I have parents come to me and say, oh, now I know why my son enjoys English. Oh it doesn't, it's sort of a compliment and makes me feel gross. Um, so I guess uh, I love what I do. I love it so much. I love it. I had, I've, I've been here all day with my Year 12 Extension 2 English students. Um, so I'm just so pleased to see you and meet you. And, um, but I guess I was talking to my dear friend about emotional labour. Um, and I think as a teacher, my work-life balance, mm, not so great. Um, but I'm so, and I was talking again to my friend Kat, and I say to myself, I'm like, I say to her, I, I feel like I am so conscious of my emotional labour, and then there's you who faces this every day, and, and I, I do as well. I, I teach 14 to 18-year-old boys, and on International Women's Day, I'm, you know, there's about a 50-50 split between 
the boys who want to listen, the boys who are asking me about when International Men's Day is. November 19th. Yeah. Mm. And I tell them this because I know this because we invest. Also so World Toilet Day. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, we're we're going to have to... I'm so sorry. No, I'm so sorry. But so in, in emotional labour, is there a balance for you? Is there something that you could recommend that to, to invest or not to invest? Well, you know what? Firstly, I'd have to say uh, I could not in a million years do what you do. I couldn't. I couldn't. <laughs> I'd bow down to you. I couldn't go and teach in a high school. I, I, I've had terrible experiences in schools because of the tiny group of boys who make it so horrible for everyone else. And I say that as an adult woman who goes in to speak at schools, that it's been awful. Really? Um, and I couldn't do it day to day. And I actually, uh, last week, wrote an article that was published in the Saturday know, paper in Melbourne. <laughs> I was just, when you were telling me your stories, I was just like, I've just heard this over and over and over. So for people who didn't know, I, I reached out to teachers and I asked them to share their stories of sexual harassment and bullying and abuse that they've experienced in high schools um, because it seemed to me that the teaching industry was one of the last industries that was yet to address Me Too um, because it's such a unique situation. You know, every child is entitled to an education. If you were going to, to work in you know, the state government, I mean, obviously the state government probably also <laughs> fucked about sexual harassment too, but they would pretend to care about it. There would be a process where you could go to HR and you could say, my male colleagues are humping the air as I walk past. What can be done about this? But because you work in education and these are teenage boys and all oh, well, teenage boys, all the things that I heard from women, you know, like so many dozens and dozens of women reached out to me um, that they, you know, women being groped at school, like being surrounded by packs of boys and being touched by boys that they didn't, they couldn't even, they couldn't even tell who was touching them, uh, having upskirt photographs taken, you know, make sure, being told don't, don't let any of the students take photographs of you because we've had a problem with them photoshopping their teachers' heads onto porn stars' heads, and, um, you know, when they complain to their school administration, being told, oh well, that's just him, he doesn't like female teachers, like as if this is an acceptable response. Um, or, you know, again, take it as a compliment. Um, and young women as well, because it mostly happens to young female teachers, being made to feel like they can't complain because they, they're supposed to be the one in authority. And if they can't handle the class, then they failed somehow. So I could never do that. I couldn't do that job. I think my job is a million times easier than your job. Um, I don't know what advice I can give you about the emotional labor because the way that I deal with it is just by tuning out and watching Married at First Sight. Oh, I do that too. <laughs> <laughs> and then clearly engaging in some different kind of labour over that. Um, I don't have an answer for you, but I think in, in the education system in particular, it's a, it's a hyper-feminised workforce and it's one in which the, te the female teaching workforce is being subjected to daily harassment and nothing is being done and mm. something is going to have to give mm. at some point. Mm. True. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2019 Newcastle Writers' Festival. Save the date for next year's festival, April 3 to 5, and follow us on Facebook for regular updates.